Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am here. I have a number of different people in my office here on the 24th floor. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people, including my guest today, Bert Fields, who I'm very excited about. We are going to field a baseball team today, I think is what's happening. I wanted to start off and say thank you so much for all the support, all of you. I know I sound like a broken record, and I always say that a lot. And I don't mean to be boring by saying it, but I tell you, without you guys, the show wouldn't be anywhere. And what started, I guess, as a hobby, it still is a wonderful hobby. It's grown tremendously because of your support. And I'm very, very grateful. And I want to thank all of you. And as I was telling my guest earlier, I want to thank all of you because we launched this week our 100th episode number 17 in the world of comedy and 77 in the world out of 350,000 podcasts. And again, it's all because of you guys and your support and subscribing. And I'm very, very grateful. But I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about my guest, Bert Fields. And he should be very flattered because this is the most people that have ever come to any podcast in my entire life out of God knows over 100 And so what I always do, as you know, is I look at my guests and I never know what I'm going to say, but I think I know where I'm going to go here. So, you know, when I was a young kid, for those of you who listen to the podcast, you know that I discovered albums in my basement 
after my dad passed away was a young kid and they were all African-American artists. Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole, Dinah Washington, The Supremes. And the reason I got into comedy also is because there were only three albums of white artists, which were Bob Newhart, The Smothers Brothers, and Jonathan Winters. But I got a record player with S&H Green Stamps, for those of you old enough to know what that is. And I started listening to the music, and I loved the music. And I, I, I actually grew up on the music of African-American artists, but I never understood why, because my whole town was all white in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. I mean, there were only a couple of black families there. And so I was fascinated by African-American artists and the first artist that blew me away that I related to, believe it or not, even though he had an Afro and he was my age was Michael Jackson. And I used to watch him and the Jackson five on all the daytime television talk shows that they would perform on, like the Mike Douglas show and the Merv Griffin show. And of course the tonight show and really inspirational to me. And as a young child, I never really understood how somebody got to be an artist and got to be great. And whether it was channeled through you or whether it was something that you just were naturally gifted with when you were born. And as I sit across from Bert Fields and you'll learn is that he's not just an extraordinary lawyer. He's an extraordinary commentator on the world and an extraordinary writer. He's written many books. He's studied things in history and spent years and years of his life working on them. Certain years that he was at his law firm, he was known as the hardest working person at his law firm, logging as much as 3,000 hours. And so when I look at him and I look at one of the people that he represented along the way, Michael Jackson, I think of similarities between him in that way because Michael Jackson was a tireless worker and he was an incredible philanthropist like Bert Fields who I'm sitting across from and one of the things that I relate to here and that I want to talk about I always talk about that thing that happens as an artist and if you are an artist listening or if you're anybody who aspires to do anything great I always think to myself you normally have to lose your innocence you normally have to have something that happens in your life that sort of as I say blows a hole through you. And for Michael Jackson, it's very well documented that when he was a young child in this band, he was verbally abused by his father. His father even used to sit in sessions, musical sessions, with a belt in his hand. You know, you imagine performing and thinking to yourself, am I going to get beaten if I do the wrong note or if I do something wrong? And he would constantly tell him and pick on him, similar to how Louis Anderson talked about his father calling him fat and lard ass and he's never going to make it. Well, Michael Jackson's father coincidentally used to say a part of him was fat and that was his nose. So you look at that and that's what drives people when sometimes some things like this happen and you just constantly have these events in life that just take you down. And my guest here is no exception to having things happen to him in his life. And so I look at that and I look at Michael Jackson from when I was a young kid and following his career and seeing him perform and seeing the impact that he made not only on the world, but on me 
as one of the members of the world to be a guy who sold over 750 million records, a guy who won, I believe, 13 Grammy Awards, but still all through his life was never satisfied with his appearance, never satisfied with the way he looked. And it all stems back from the things that happen when you're a young child and how you deal with those and how you make things work. And so today, believe it or not, coincidentally is the sixth anniversary of Michael Jackson's death. And to me, I've seen a lot of artists in my life take their own lives in, in unique and horrible ways. Some knowingly doing it and some thinking they could get away with it one more time and that one more time doesn't happen. So as I sit here and I talk to you guys, the one thing I could share is this. If you are an artist or a great person in any profession that you're in, wherever it is, the key is, of course, you look back and you look at the things that happened to you as a child, and yes, they're bone-crushing. But you want to use those to drive your career forward. But once you make it, and once you start making more than that cutoff of that $75,000 a year where they say that you'll just be as happy with 75000 a year as you will with $75 million. the fact is, is that you have to be able to figure out a way to handle the pressure, figure out a way to deal with all the things that are coming at you and stay away from the things that are going to be damaging in your life and your career. Because when you talk about somebody like Michael Jackson, he's a man who gave so much money to charity, inspired so many people. And when you die, it obviously stops. So if I could say anything, if any of you out there feel like you are on the verge of doing something that's on the edge, no matter what profession you're in, you might be the highest paid guy on Wall Street. You might be a high-priced attorney. You might be a doctor who's a brain surgeon who's kicking ass. You might be the head of a chain of stores. But what happens is sometimes you jump the shark and get ahead of your lifestyle. And if you can think about it and listen to this podcast, my only advice to you is take a deep look at everything because you mean a lot to millions of people thousands of people, maybe hundreds of people. But when you're gone, your memory will only be valuable to those people. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to let you know about this one persistent guy, Michael Purcell, who kept calling me and traveled to L.A. to meet me. He told me that he created a company 10 years ago called Global Cash Card that figured out a way to make the payroll of any size company a paperless situation, allowing every employee's weekly salary 
to be instantly loaded anytime, anywhere, stress-free onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. He went on to tell me that it costs a company around $3 for every paycheck cut. And that means if you're an organization that writes a thousand paper checks every week, with his company, you'd save $12,000 a month by using Global Cash Card. And if you do the math, that's $135,000 a year. So go to GlobalCashCard.com right now to schedule live demo, speak to Michael Purcell, check out their system, and see how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And in honor of the people out there who listen to this program, at the end of this show and at the conclusion of every single show, every single week until the end of the year, we'll be giving away one free $100 gift card to a randomly selected person who has written a review, good or bad, on the industry standard iTunes comments review section. And that's from all of our friends at Global Cash Card. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very excited today, despite my morbid cold open. I'm very, very happy to be here today. I've got a lot of people here who are here for the first time watching a podcast. I have Bert Fields here. This is his first podcast ever and probably one of the most famous attorneys in the world, if not the most famous attorney in the world. And I get to sit across from a guy who sat across from some of the most amazing people that I have ever read about or seen, many of them geniuses. And normally, I will say this before I introduce Bert, if somebody is sitting down with geniuses and geniuses are hiring that person, guess what that makes that person? Genius. And that's who Bert Fields is, and I'm going to introduce him right now. Bertram Fields was born in Los Angeles, California, and received a B.A. from the University of California, Los Angeles. He then attended Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Harvard Law Review, receiving a Doctor of Jurisprudence degree, magna cum laude, in 1952. During the Korean War, he served as a first lieutenant in the United States Air Force, and in 1955, he began the general practice of law that has continued to this present time. He has represented many top performers, directors, writers, producers, studio talent agencies, book publishers, and record companies. These examples range between DreamWorks Animation, United Artists, The Weinstein Company, Tom Cruise, James Cameron, Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, Mike Nichols, Jeffrey Katzenberg, David Geffen, Jerry Bruckheimer, Joel Silver, Madonna, Michael Jackson, Sony Music, and The Beatles. Hacks. He has represented such major authors as Mario Puzo, Tom Clancy, and Richard Bach. Mr. Fields has represented virtually every major Hollywood studio and talent agency and has tried many of the landmark cases in the entertainment and communications industries over the past 30 years. He is the author under the pseudonym of D. Kincaid for two novels, The Sunset Bomber and The Lawyer's Tale. His third book is a biographical work on Richard III under his own name and designated Book of the Year by the Ricardian Society. His fourth book is an analysis of the Shakespeare authorship question published by Reagan Books HarperCollins. He has recently published Destiny, a novel about Napoleon and Josephine, and is currently working on a novel about Shylock, an analysis of the reign of Elizabeth I. 
He also teaches the course on entertainment law at Stanford Law School and lectures at Harvard Law School. He's lectured on Shakespeare at various venues, including the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. Please welcome my guest and honor, Bert Fields. Thank you. I just am blown away because you've done so many different things. And I just think to myself, how does a guy who's doing all these things and working hard on all these things have all the time to research Shakespeare and all these historical things for a book or write a romance novel? How do you find the time to do that? Well, firstly, uh, you're very nice to call them romance novels. They were just sex novels is basically what they were. <laughs> you know, I'm laughing hard about this because I have to share something with you. Yeah, I'm not going to point anybody out here, but somebody here said, listen, this guy's wrote sex novels, these trashy sex novels. I said, I can't say that in front of him. <laughs> sure what's, a, what's a word I can say instead yeah. of that? And somebody said romance novels. Now I say romance novels. You say you're giving too much credit. Yeah, you're giving me too much credit. Well, uh, they were novels about a lawyer who was very, very good at his job and terrible about his personal life. And he couldn't keep his hands off of women. And really, both novels deal with that. Second one has a tragedy, but the legal parts are true. The sex parts, I made up. Do you At least that's what I told you my wife. you expect me to believe them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe these things. I'm so, you know, I think to myself, I'm different from you. I can't, I can't get my hands off a woman's mind. <laughs> now, if I can only figure out how to get them on their body, I'll be right. all set. You'll get there. <laughs> the, uh, so the when do you have time to write these? Well, first of all, I never set a deadline for myself. I don't make a deal with a publisher until after I finished. So I don't have to worry about when I turn it in. So I, I can just do weekends, summers. It takes me maybe seven to nine years to write a book. So I have a very <laughs> short body of work. Seven to nine years? Yeah. Well, because I only I have this day job. I didn't know you had a day job. No. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'd love to go way, way back. Sure. So you grow up where in Los Angeles? What kind of socioeconomic situation are you in? Is your family poor, rich? And take me through the first thing in your mind that comes in there. What's the inspiration for you getting into the law profession and specifically entertainment law? My family was wiped out uh, in the Depression. They jumped into an old car and drove across the country. My father was a doctor. In those days, nobody was paying doctors, so people would pay him with chickens and stuff like that. Uh, it was hard at the beginning, but I can't say we were poor. We, we seemed to get by. Uh, I was growing up here in Los Angeles, which was a very, very different place from what it is today. In so what, many part, what part of Los Angeles were you? Uh, we lived in somewhere near Hancock Park and then moved out west uh, in, into a canyon uh, near Coldwater Canyon. Uh, but the war came, and my dad... Uh, who was too old to go in, felt he owed it to the country. So he volunteered to be a surgeon in the, in the service. And I followed him around the country. Uh, 
went to high school in New Mexico, which was uh, in some ways marvelous and in some ways shocking. But I can talk about that. You know, today uh, we have a lot of emphasis on racism and where black people stand today. Uh, I don't know if any of you really have an idea of what it was like. And this was the Southwest, not the South. We went to a beautiful, beautiful WPA-built high school. I played football, and we had a gorgeous stadium, and it was great. There was a junior high school. It was just as nice. We had about eight kids in a class, all white kids. Across town, in a mud flat, there was a school. It was the black school. That isn't what they called it, of course. It was the N-word. And black kids from grades one through six were all in this one-room shack in a field of mud. They couldn't go to the gorgeous high school that I went to or the gorgeous junior high school that other people went to. And the thing that makes me ashamed is I was a kid, but I didn't do anything about it. I didn't even talk about it. I just had fun playing football. Looking back on it, I'm ashamed I didn't do something even then. Uh, but that's, we've moved so, so far from that. We've got a long way to go, of course. But it was, uh, I mean, Los Angeles in those days was as a, a very different place as well. You had the German-American Bund walking in the streets before the war. Uh, violently anti-Semitic here. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean to take you down that no, serious no, road. No, uh, no, this is really important. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I was going to ask you about the New Mexico. So was there ever a time where you witnessed horrible things from friends or family against African-American people back then? Or you, it was just a thing where they were there yeah. and you were there and you never... Crossed. They, 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 they never crossed. They didn't uh, really, they weren't allowed to go into the stores that uh, we patronized. So how did they get their food? I Mostly, because since this was a farming community, they had little plots of land, and I guess they would grow their own food. They probably had their own grocery store. I don't remember. But I don't remember seeing black people uh, in, in the shops in this little town, small town. But you know how sometimes, like, you ride your bicycle a certain path and all mm -hmm. of a sudden you might see an African-American boy, like, standing right there yeah. on the side. Did you ever stop and say hello or do anything like that or no, you just went right I'm by? I'm embarrassed to say I didn't, but I, they were so separated that really you didn't encounter them. Uh, it, it, but you grew it was up, stunning. But you grew up with this racism, mm -hmm. yet it didn't stay with you. How come? Well, I never felt the racism. You know, was, I, I would have been thrilled to, first of all, probably a lot of black kids who would have made our football team a hell of a lot better football <laughs> team because I was slow and small. But uh, I, it wasn't a problem for me. I just didn't even think about it. You know, I knew that that school was on the other side of town because I'd asked, what is that? Uh, and I, I would talk about it with my folks who were appalled by it. Uh, 
but I was busy dating and playing football. So uh, it all goes back to dating, doesn't it? A lot of it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious. Mm -hmm. I know I'm going to come back here, but I want to sure. just jump ahead a little bit. Sorry to take you into a no, serious no, subject. It's, like no, that, I no. love it. It's so. I remember for me, I was in an all white mm -hmm. town. Now, granted. It was the 60s. Yeah. But I remember in my school, the first time I ran into an African-American kid was when there was some kind of program in my high school where I guess kids came from another area or whatever. Yeah. And it was only like about maybe four or six. And I remember they would always sit at the same table. But I would always try to go sit over there and... Mm -hmm. I don't know why, maybe it's because of these albums from when I was growing up or whatever it was, or looking at Michael Jackson, but I was always fascinated by the world and nobody ever bothered me and nobody ever said anything. I never heard a racist word at all in my high school, believe it or not. I never heard anything until I went to Boston university where a guy named Al Heyman was a producer and he went to Harvard where you went and he produced concerts at the Providence Civic Center because you couldn't bring a black concert to the Boston Garden because I remember there was busing back then. But the point I'm trying to make is that was the first time that I was a part of that world and I remember the only racism I ever heard was I was in a car once with my grandmother and my grandmother referred to african-american people as the coloreds mm -hmm. and at that moment i said to myself this is never going to be for me i'm not going to be in this situation and so for you you grow up in all this what was the first time where you're actually there and you know there's african-american people your age with you and you're now interacting for the first time with a group of people that when you grew up were completely isolated and how was your reaction and how did you feel and what happened well i i didn't have any racist feelings even when i was in new mexico uh, it's just they weren't there and i didn't think about it uh, well my parents did when i got out of high school and went to college i had a very very uh, close friend uh cheryl luke who became a judge ultimately uh, african-american outstanding guy and he was the student body president but just to give you an illustration of how this wasn't only new mexico cheryl couldn't get his haircut in westwood because my barber said bird if we ever cut negro hair i'd never have another customer and this is westwood california 1949 uh and Cheryl uh, was just this delightful guy. And I was one of his campaign managers when he ran for student body president. And uh, in any event, it sort of made up for what I had overlooked before. Okay, so you go to college. When do you think to yourself, I want to get into law? Well, I thought I was going to be a doctor like my father. And somebody said, take an aptitude test. And I did. And it was off the charts both ways. You know, it was like if you, be, if you become a doctor, you're going to kill millions of people. You have no skill and no talent. You're not really interested <laughs> in it. Don't do it. But if you become a lawyer, you ought to do pretty well. So I had a painful moment when I had to go to my father, who 
had kept his surgical notes for me. We were going to share an office, and I had to say, Dad, I can't do it. I really want to be a lawyer. What did he say? He went along. And he, he wasn't happy about it, but he, he went along. And then I went back to Harvard, which was a whole new world, which was just incredible. Changed my life. But you have to get into Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> so were you always a hard worker in high school, and were you always one of the best students? I was usually one of the best students, but I, I really didn't work much at it. And certainly in college, I didn't work. You but went I, to Harvard and you didn't work? Oh, at Harvard, I worked. But the college that you went college, to before? College, I didn't. Uh, I, I really didn't work very hard. UCLA. You, but how do you get into Harvard if you don't work hard and get great? Uh, my grades were pretty good, and I had an LSAT score that was quite high. So you go to Harvard. Why does Harvard change your life? Because all of a sudden, from a college experience where I just had fun and dealt with a lot of fun people, I was in this incredible milieu with brilliant people, kids who had been the top of their class all over the country, all over the world, because we had lots of foreign students. It, just that was incredible. The fact that the faculty was extraordinary. I mean, dealing with leading figures in the law, almost historical figures. You, And it, not only in the law, but at Harvard, for example, I could walk 100 yards and, and have a, attend a poetry lecture by Archibald McLeish. Uh, Aaron Copeland was teaching music uh, about 200 yards away. I mean, it was just a spectacular place to be, and it opened a whole vista that I, I had never even imagined before. What's the difference between brilliant women and the women you were dating? They were pretty brilliant. <laughs> the, the, uh, I mean, extraordinary. In those days, they had something called Radcliffe, which was the women's Harvard. And so I, I used to go out with a lot of Radcliffe girls, and they were extraordinary. I mean, they knew so much more than I did, and I felt so uneducated compared to these girls. They still do. They still do, yeah. All right, so you go through Harvard, and yep. you— graduate and you have a John Hausman-like paper chase kind of existence there. Yep. What's your next step? Like, what kind of law do you decide you want to be in? Well, I was hired to teach at Stanford then. Uh, you were hired to teach at Stanford after you graduated Harvard? Yeah. How is that possible? The dean from Stanford came back uh, looking for good students to start teaching a teaching career. So I did that, but Unfortunately, the Korean War was going on, and my draft board didn't think uh, <laughs> that they had to give deferments to a guy who was teaching in at Stanford. So I got a call from my father. It, it was, I, my grades had come through from my third year at, at, at law school, and he said, you got uh, six A's. And I said, but I only took five courses, Dad. <laughs> he said, yeah, I know. The sixth is from your draft board. You're 1A. Congratulations. Oh. So I, uh, I signed up as a lieutenant in JAG, which, by the way, I never thought they'd make a television series about that my branch of the service. 
And then I, uh, I tried court martials for two years uh, here and in England. And that's when I That's thought, what you did in the war. So yeah. instead of being a soldier, you were trying court martials. That's right. Tell us a story. A lot safer. <laughs> Tell us a story that is unique and special about one of your court martials. And, and did you used to win every case or did you lose some? Oh, you had to lose some because when typically it was so heavily weighted in favor of the prosecution that it was pretty hard to get acquittals in those days. Uh, and the, what they would do is they would take the people who just started who were green and make them defense lawyers. The experienced guys were the prosecutors. Then when you got experience, you started winning some cases. They'd make you a prosecutor. <laughs> so, the, uh, But I uh, had uh, some pretty successful defenses, and I, had, uh, I, I learned an enormous amount. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And what's the craziest thing anybody did in the war that you were prosecuting them to court-martial them? What's the craziest circumstance that ever happened? Oh, with I don't somebody? know if there was anything that crazy uh it was a little bit like the cane mutiny court-martial if you remember that play it it, it it was i don't even want to use the young man's name i was defending a a sad sack a guy was just a hopeless hopeless airman uh he couldn't do anything right and he'd been working in the officers club and he was accused of stealing from the officers' club. And in investigating it and then carrying out that investigation and cross-examination, it seemed that this veteran with every kind of medal you can think of, uh, Master Sergeant, was actually the thief. And I was able to show that. And on the stand, like in a movie, this guy collapsed and admitted that he had been taking the money and this poor schlumpy guy that I was defending did not. And he was acquitted. And afterwards, as in the play, the court-martial, 
the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, I felt guilt because this sergeant had fought through the war. He'd been wounded. He had the Purple Heart, two Purple Hearts, as I recall it. And I had just destroyed him. And I thought, what? This is fun for you. You know, it's a big, big kick. You got an acquittal. You got this bum off. And what you did was probably send to Leavenworth a guy who saved your ass by fighting against Hitler. Uh, that, anyway, that's, that's one I remember. That seems to me to be the toughest thing about being an attorney is that you're being hired by the person. You're being paid a sum of money to do a job. And for many lawyers, they find out during the conversations things that they're not going to tell to the judge or the jury. And they have to hold that inside that they know these things. But their job is to not necessarily worry about that. Their job is to figure out how to do that job and successfully. And so it's similar to Tom Brady recently this week with 40 lawyers from both sides in the basement at the NFL. And Tom Brady has to sit across from Roger Goodell and he has to tell him. And I don't even know what possible reason he could say of, hey, Tom, why didn't you just give the guy your phone? He would sit there with you. You show him the text just from that person, nothing from Giselle. Why did you not do that? We all wouldn't have to be here. Mm -hmm. But there's lawyers on his side that give a compelling argument of why Tom mm -hmm. didn't just sit there with the guy and cooperate. And in your career, mm -hmm. you're one of the types of people that figures out how to make Tom Brady look completely innocent and like he knew yeah. nothing about it, even though you know what Tom Brady told you isn't exactly what you're saying in that room. How do you, like, you know, you said to yourself when you were talking about New Mexico, yeah. which is kind of a correlation here. You said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you said, I'm kind of, I feel kind of bad. You know, I knew what was going on. I never went over there. I never said hello. I never yeah. did anything about it, but I knew. Mm -hmm. So when you're representing somebody like the lawyers for Tom Brady and you know, you know, if they know on the other side exactly what you know, you know, they're going away. How do you deal with that inside and how do you live with yourself knowing that you know things that maybe the world should know? Well, you put your finger on why I stopped doing criminal law. When I got out of the service, I thought I was a hotshot criminal lawyer because all my cases, those court martials, were all criminal cases. So I defended a, a number of uh, defendants, and, and it was, thinking back, it would be hard for me to remember any criminal defendant that I defended, and I got some acquittals. Uh, that was innocent. And one of them ended up killing somebody after I got him off of a lesser charge. And I said, I don't really want to do this anymore. Uh, I don't want to... At, at the beginning, it was fun. It was fighting the system and terrific. 
But as I did it and I saw what was happening, I said, let somebody else do that. I, I'm going to become a civil trial lawyer. I'm not going to I'm not going to get people off. Now, in a way, that's a shame because if everybody shared that attitude, people wouldn't get criminal defenses and people should have criminal defenses. And I don't mean to say everybody who's charged is guilty because they're not. But uh, for the most part, people don't get indicted uh, unless there's pretty strong evidence that they've done it because uh, prosecutors don't like to lose and they don't want to start a trial that they think they're going to lose. So usually there's some pretty good evidence. In any event, that was very early in my career. And that was the genesis of the sometimes famous table rubbing case. I don't know if you know about that. Tell us. Okay. Well, one of my first trials involved a, a man who was arrested in a Skid Row Theater uh, for groping a an undercover vice squad cop, and he, apparently they had been standing at the urinal, and according to the cop, my client groped him, and my client denied that, and in cross examination, I thought. I had a question that I thought would work no matter what the answer was. And it was, isn't it true that my client just brushed you, perhaps even accidentally, for a second? And the cop bit the way I thought he wouldn't. Uh, and he said, no, Mr. Fields. He said, he stroked me for at least 45 seconds. And so... Of course, in closing argument, I said to the jury, take out your watches, and here we are. You've got an officer of the law. He's there. And by the way, officers of the law are accurate. This is not just somebody saying 45 seconds. I mean, he knows 45 seconds as opposed to 10 seconds. And here, and I went up to the jury rail like this, and I said, here they are. My client is standing there next to him at the urinal and well that's enough to make the offense right there but and I'm rubbing and rubbing on the jury rail and I say well that's now that's eight seconds <laughs> what do you think they're talking about while my client is committing this crime and he did I by the time I got to 18 seconds the jury was just roaring and they acquitted the guy in about five minutes <laughs> I'm sure guilty as hell. Do you think that channeled through you at the moment? Are those moments when you think about those things, do you chalk them up to your education? Do you chalk them up to your worldliness? Do you chalk them up to your experience? Or is it a lot of times it just channels through you like a line in your book that you're writing at, at a certain time? Well, it's a composite of all those things. Uh, human experience, education, doing it a lot, uh, sense of drama really because when you're trying cases you're really putting on a, a drama uh, for the court I mean it should be a truthful drama but it's a drama you want to make it uh, you want to get it across in dramatic terms and 
I, I sure I could have just stood up and said, "This guy's exaggerating." You know, he didn't get stroke for forty-five minutes. But to rub that jury rail in front of the jurors and have them looking at their watches, that made a little drama out of it. Uh, you know, Billy Rose once said, "Whatever you say in life, serve a little dressing on it," and. So I, I try to do that kind of thing in, in trying cases. I make it entertaining for the judge or the jury. And judges sit there and they're bored all day. So if you can make it exciting and interesting, it, it, that's a plus. But the judge isn't deciding the case. The jury is. Oh, in that case, it was a jury. But often I have cases where the judge decides. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. Got it. Early on, not later on. No, no. I, I have judge trials all the time. Why would somebody want just a judge trial? Isn't that a little risky? Well, if I'm a motion picture studio and I'm being sued by some poor guy who claims that the studio ripped him off or didn't pay him what we should have paid him, uh, I don't want a jury. I want a judge to decide that. I've got lots of legal arguments I can make, and uh, they're going to be very uh, – jury's not going to think a lot of my legal arguments. They're going to think this poor guy, he worked so hard and he didn't get the money. So very often one side, sometimes both sides, feel more comfortable just having a judge decide it. What happens if a judge hears both arguments? They're both incredibly compelling, and mm -hmm. it's almost like – in your mind as a judge, you're just saying to yourself, I, I just can't decide either way. What happens? Well, fortunately, there are no ties in, <laughs> in trials. So what does a judge do when well, he's feeling conflicted that each side he feels something for? Uh, as a practical matter, a judge in that situation will often try to find a way that he can split the baby that he can give something to each side. And usually in a complicated case, he can do that. For example, uh, I, I've seen cases where a judge is in almost exactly that situation. And you have one side that's saying there's a breach of contract here, and the other side saying there's no breach of contract. And besides, even if there was a breach of contract, there are no damages. And so the judge can say, well... All right, I'm going to find that there was a breach of contract here, but it didn't cause any harm, and I'm going to give the the plaintiff a dollar. Now, that's a way of splitting the baby. The plaintiff feels like, well, I proved that they broke the contract, but the defendant can go home feeling, yeah, what, gave him a buck? Uh, that's the way a judge can sometimes deal with that. But very rarely are things so evenly balanced that a judge is going to say, gosh, I don't know who's right here. Got it. So let's keep going in your career. And how do you end up getting into the more high profile celebrity cases? Like what's the first thing that happens that you do where people witness it and they say, I got to hire that guy? Well, uh, there were friends who were young actors, writers, uh, directors, and they would, I would try cases for them. And then as time went on, some of them started to say, well, why don't you do our contracts? So I would start doing their contracts. And those same 
actors and writers became older and more successful, and I sort of moved up with them. It just I didn't start out to be an entertainment lawyer. I started out to be just a pure trial lawyer. Of course, it's such a big industry here in the city, it's hard to be a trial lawyer without doing some entertainment-type work. So one thing led to another, and ultimately, here I am. <laughs> and what was the first case that you feel moved the needle for you in this community? The uh, one where people looked at and said, I got to hire that guy. I would guess it's a many, many years ago, probably the uh, Richard Bach, who wrote a book called Jonathan Livingston Seagull, this many years ago, was made into a Paramount picture. And Richard Bach, uh, like Anne Rand, uh, was extremely conservative in his views. He believed that nobody should do anything to help mankind. Perfect yourself and mankind will get better. Uh, and he that was the theme of his book. And Paramount changed it totally and had the leading character working only for society. And Richard went crazy and the picture was out and uh, I was able to get an injunction taking the picture out of release unless they changed it. The judge bought the argument that uh, they had no right to do such a radical change to this guy's philosophy in making this film. Now, let's play devil's advocate. Yeah. Richard Bach accepted a check. He cashed the check. All right. And in exchange, they got to take this material with their interpretation and do whatever they wanted with it. Mm, that isn't what the judge ruled. I know. Uh, there, there was language in the contract that could support our position because it said there will be no fundamental change without his approval. They contended he had approved. He never did. The judge believed him, didn't believe them. So it wasn't just completely off the rails. But in any event, that was the, the first kind of big-time case. Uh, I'd had a whole bunch before that, but that, that, that one sort of got people hiring me more often. And so you started getting yeah. the calls. Then came the Beatles case, of course, which was... You get the call to do the Beatles case. I mean, pretty, when you get pretty the, exciting. When you get the call, is there ever a time when you hang up and you're just like, <laughs> "Holy shit!" Yeah. Well, it was kind of like that. Uh, you know, somebody called the lawyer saying, uh, "How'd you like to represent the Beatles?" And I said, "I, I think I could do that." Uh, this was about <laughs> Beatlemania, wasn't yeah, it? Right. Now, what's confusing is. At my wedding, I had a Beatles replica group called the Fab Four. Sure. So there's Beatles replica bands everywhere. So how do you stop them all? They You don't now. Uh, you could. I mean, that precedent stands. But keep in mind, two are gone. And there just isn't the will to fight it anymore. They... they uh, they have just made a decision that, uh, and some time ago, that they're just not going to try to stop it anymore. But Beatlemania, at that time, they felt very, very differently about it. And they were very exercised, and they were right. I mean, I thought it was a ripoff, but it was 
a very close case because Beatlemania was able to argue this is the First Amendment, this is history, the Beatles change as the show goes on. It was a, it was a close fight. But the judge ended up issuing an injunction against, uh, took it off the stages all over the world. And the Beatles uh, won. Uh, I got to be a pretty good friend of George Harrison, who I thought was just a wonderful guy. You also did something with him as well. You worked with him on another case, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, a couple of other cases, yeah. George became a friend, and I you know, visited him in his place in, in England, and uh, it was kind of exciting stuff. It must be. It was a great loss. That must have been a really oh, tough time. God, just so sad. Yeah, it, it's like sometimes when you work with people and they die, it's almost like, for me, mm-hmm. I just feel my own mortality, and I just think to myself, just treasure every moment because you just don't know. You don't know. Well, I went through a very personal experience like that. My wife of 25 years died of cancer. And once you've gone through that, uh, nothing bad can happen to you. I mean, it's, it is so devastating. Uh, it just, I can't even describe it. I didn't mean to take you in that. No, <laughs> no, it's, it's all Sad, fantastic. Uh, no, but I had a thing. podcast that I did. I don't think I've ever gotten more uh, feedback on anything. Mm-hmm. I did something for Jay Moore, who has a podcast called More Stories, and I kept getting these emails about the last 10 minutes of the podcast and mm-hmm. how I don't want to get into the whole story. They'll have to listen to it, but suffice to say that there was an incident with my children where one of their dogs was killed by a coyote and I had to tell them. And one of the examples I used about how you just don't understand why things happen, why bad things happen. And I said, I was married 30 years ago and I lost my wife. And at the time I was lying in bed, depressed, wondering what the hell was going to happen. Why did this happen? How could this happen? Just like you, in a lesser extent, with your dog, one day you hug him, the next day he's gone, and you wonder what the reason is. And I sit across from you, and I think from your wonderful marriage to Miss Guggenheim, that you realize that the world has a plan. And at the time, you don't know what the plan is. But now you know what the plan was. And it's horrible that somebody's life has to be taken. But you know the kind of relationship you've had and how wonderful it's been. And there you go. I was lucky enough that both relationships, totally different women in in their way, uh, both were wonderful relationships. And and, uh, I will never really totally get over the death of my first wife, uh, Lydia, and tear up a little bit. Uh, and But Barbara's a whole different thing, and it's a very, very happy marriage, and she's turned my life around. So I'm okay now, except for a tear now and then. Look, I cry all the time about my first wife and why things happen like yeah. that and how they happen, and um, I look into the eyes of my children. Mm-hmm. And I realized that somebody had a plan. And again, we talk well, about the yeah. hole that's blown through you. Yeah. 
and how you become great and how you drive through, that has a lot to do with it. And that has a lot to do with it. And I'll say this about it, as I, I kind of said before, uh, once something that terrible happens to you, then other things that happen really don't bother you that much because you've really been through something so horrible that you get a judge you don't like, you get a bad decision, you have a small smash-up in your car, uh, things that would ordinarily shrug them off because that's nothing. This is great. This is so great. You're wonderful. Wonderful. Let's talk about, if you don't mind. Michael Jackson. We'll all go to jail here. <laughs> yeah. We can talk about Michael Jackson I'm first. Delighted because, uh, to talk about Michael. Very inspirational in my life. Mine too. Take me through the phone call you got. Again, like the Beatles, you get the Michael Jackson phone call. and uh, Actually, it was a phone call from somebody who was advising Michael Jackson. You know, I think what's, and I'm interrupting, yeah, the people right. listening to this will hate me again because I'm well documented for my interruptions because I love to think of these interviews yeah. as not as interviews as we are having a conversation. And when you have a conversation with somebody, you wouldn't necessarily just ask a question. What's fascinating about your business is for a lot of people in business out in the world, we have to fight to get business. We have to cold call. We have to do things. We have to convince people to do things. We have to turn no's into yeses. You, and maybe you'll find this insulting, after you start getting some success, you just sit back in your chair and the phone calls come in. You don't call Michael Jackson and say, I can help you. No. You don't call Mario Puzo and say, hey, I'm the guy for you. Let me sell you on my wares. You're just taking incoming calls the whole time. That's absolutely right. And it's shocking to a lot of people. Uh, my law firm has a kind of a, a marketing person. And uh, this guy came down to my office one day and said, would you give a little talk about to our young associates on how to get business? And I said, I'm the wrong guy. <laughs> because it may sound crazy to you, but I have never done anything in my entire life to get business. And I'm sure I'd be terrible at it. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine calling somebody and saying, let me be your lawyer. This is what uh, you should tell them when you sit down and you actually do meet with them. You should just tell them this. Listen, this is how I get business. I'm extraordinary at what I do, <laughs> and I'm the best at what I do. Just do that. And you'll get business. Yeah. It's, in any event, I, I've been lucky enough, so I haven't had to go out and hustle. So you get the call from Michael Jackson's advisor, one of the mm -hmm. 700 that's advised him. No, this was a real, real advisor. Uh, actually, it was David Geffen. Oh, okay. Uh, who uh, asked if I would uh, start representing Michael. And, and I was a fan, and I... I said, yes, I would. And uh, that started what was uh, just a f fabulous experience. Uh, what was the first thing that he wanted you to represent Michael on? I think it was probably negotiating uh, a record contract. Was it that historic maybe? landmark Sony contract where he 
got the highest royalty ever from a record company, I believe, was 37%. I don't even remember what the percentage was. <laughs> I remember because I did my research. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a landmark contract at the time. Uh, and, but I can't, I remember it was negotiated with a guy named John Dolgen, who was then... Jonathan Dolgen. Right. Uh, and, and because he did something that was just... I thought wonderful as a negotiating tactic. I had many dealings with him over the years. And he, as we sat down, instead of talking tough, he said, Bert, this is Michael Jackson. We have to have Michael Jackson. You pretty much are going to get whatever you ask. I just ask you one thing. We've known each other a long time. Don't embarrass me. And I thought that was great, a great tactic, you know, and then I didn't. I didn't. That's awesome. Now, when you it went in there, I know it's hard to remember. Yeah. I can't remember the details of the thing at all. <laughs> but when you sat down with Michael for the first time, take us through that first meeting. Oh, well, I don't even know I can remember the first meeting. It was, you know, kind of, what do you think, Bert? You know, in that little sweet voice that he had, what should I do? Uh, he was, a, a, I had the impression that, that Michael was quite bright. Uh, and he would ask very intelligent questions about what you're going to do. But basically he left it to me or his other advisors at other times. Uh, Barbara and I... Uh, uh, Traveled around the uh, the world with the guy, Barbara, your wife. Yeah, with my wife, uh, we did, went with him to concerts in, in Moscow and in Romania. So he would fly you on the private jet with him. Well, there were always legal things that were coming up, and so I would fly around the world with him in those days. Now, here's another thing: you're with Michael Jackson. He offers yeah. to have you come over. Mm -hmm. But you have your wife. Is it a thing? You know that thing when yeah. somebody invites you to party and you're kind of a little nervous, even if it's like a little tiny thing. Hey, listen, can I bring a guest? Well, it's I paid for my own wife. I wouldn't ask Michael to pay. But for if it's a, a private jet, how do you pay for your own wife? Actually, we went public. I, I don't oh, okay. think we went on private. Jets. You never flew on his plane. I don't think so. I think we flew to meet him in Moscow and to meet him in uh, in Romania and in England. Uh, France too, I think. And any event, it was very exciting. And when you go to Great the con stuff. concert, would you be sitting in the crowd? Would you be backstage? Or sometimes would... backstage, sometimes sitting in the crowd. Uh, and issues would arise. I mean, he was once uh, uh, a guy tried to attack him in his dressing room, and he had the. I remember the the promoter had these two Israeli. Uh, ex-commandos uh, and they were seen little guys and this guy I've forgotten why but he was very menacing and I think he had a knife or something he was menacing looking for Michael and these guys just leaped across the room and took this guy down and in just a second <laughs> took the knife or gun whatever he had I don't remember uh, but it was scary Moscow in those days was scary it was the Wild West. I mean, people were assaulting other people in the streets, and everybody was cheating on everything. Uh, and Michael had a very successful contract tour. 
But then, of course, came the incident with the kid. Yeah, and before... Which was why we separated. And before we get into that, I imagine you do great work for him. You get 37% royalty, the highest royalty ever for an artist at the time. And then you're like a deity to him. That's why he wants you to come all around with... He wants you in every capacity because you exceeded all of his expectations. But then the thing happens with the kid. Yeah. And he obviously asks you to represent him on that. Well, by this time, I wasn't doing any criminal work, so I was just advising. Uh, but uh, in those days, Elizabeth Taylor was sort of running the case. I was convinced that Michael was innocent. I was convinced he did not lay a hand improperly on that kid, the first kid. And I didn't want him to pay that kind of money in settlement because I thought it would he would never live it down. What's weird in those situations, let's just take the money that they wanted in the settlement, which was upwards of 50 or $60 million, I believe they wanted. I can't talk about the amount. But I know you can't, but I can. Yeah. That's what's great about these interviews. Yeah. You don't have to say anything. I can say them, and you, can, you don't have to say anything about it. So I was always confused about that because you have a kid who's, like, hanging out at the Laugh Factory. Parents have no money at all. Okay, and you have a guy who has a lot of money. Why wouldn't the party that's making the claim settle for like a hundred times less? I mean, even a million dollars would change their lives. Two million would change their lives. Five million would Mm -hmm. be incredible. Why would anybody even remotely have to pay 10 times that it doesn't make any sense to me and if they're settling at 50 or 60 mm-hmm. that means they're probably asking for a hundred well there are a number of reasons why people make big settlements more than you would think often they don't want something publicized often they may feel they're guilty and this but it's too but, wasn't guilty. but it's too late it's already publicized oh well, not like a trial would have been I mean, yes, the the accusation was publicized, but you imagine what that trial would have been with Michael Jackson at the height of his career, that boy testifying and being cross-examined and the father testifying, and it would have been uh, all day long on television everywhere in the world. And so sometimes people settle for that. Elizabeth Taylor's theory was, Michael, you've got all the money in the world. What difference does it make? Just pay this guy off and get rid of it. And I felt that that was wrong. Now, when I interviewed Dr. Phil on this podcast, Mm -hmm. he advised Oprah in the uh, trial with the uh, beef company suing Oprah in Amarillo, Texas. Mm -hmm. And she had told him that all of her lawyers told her to settle. Mm Mm-hmm. And he sat down with her and he said, Oprah, do not settle. It's a tough case. You may lose it. You may win it. But mm-hmm. there'll be a lot longer line to the Oprah Sioux Club if you settle. Sure. So when you're talking to Michael, I imagine you're saying the same thing. Yeah. Well, of course, as I say, by this time, you've got 
criminal lawyers in it, and you've got Elizabeth Taylor, who was very close to Michael and whose advice he was really tending to follow. And I can't say that what she said was irrational. I mean, she just said, what, what is that many millions to you, Michael? It means nothing. Pay the guy and get rid of it, and you don't have to go through this. And I felt it would be very damaging to his career. If he paid it off. If he paid it off, yeah. So I I quit. You quit? Yeah. And did you sit down face-to-face with him and tell him why you were quitting? I wrote a nice note. And did you ever talk to him again? Yeah, I'm sure I did. I I don't—I mean, if it was, it was casual. Uh, We were never—there was no hostility or anything. I uh, just—I couldn't continue. You know what's odd, Bird, when you tell me the story is like I'm sure in your career many, many times a client didn't take your advice. Did you always quit when somebody didn't take your advice? No, but I, I have <laughs> fired some surprising clients. Uh, uh, I, I have a temper that I don't always control. <laughs> you don't seem like a guy who has a temper. Uh, well, if somebody does something that uh, is wrong, uh, I, I could react in a way. And then what could be more violent in a sense than to say, I no longer want to represent you. Take your files and get out of here. Okay. I'm going to scratch a few of my questions. <laughs> uh, okay. So Michael settles. Mm-hmm. And looking at the decision that he made to settle versus you saying he should fight it. Yeah. Looking at what happened after that and the history of what happened after that mm-hmm. in legal cases against him, would you say it hurt him settling? Yeah. It did. Oh, yeah. And how did you feel it hurt oh, him? I, I think the public thought of him as a guy who preys on little boys. I mean, why do you pay that amount of money if you're not guilty? Was this a common thread of public thinking. I'm going to go toe-to-toe with you. Yeah, go. O.J. was innocent. Do you think people think that he didn't murder the people? Well, I don't totally get your, your point. O.J. I mean, was went to, tri- went to trial, right. and he was exonerated in trial that he did not murder yeah, those people. Yeah, but that people. was an aberrational trial. I mean, that... Uh, but, Bert, it's a nobody, trial. No, 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 but uh, nobody looking at that trial, really thought that O.J. was innocent. Uh, I mean... No one. No one. No one in the prosecution side, no one in the defense side, well, no one in the audience. Well, how do 12 people unanimously decide? That's why decide. I say it's aberrational. Well, uh, Johnny Cochran was brilliant. And he, you know, you had a, a white cop that got smeared with racism. And I, I think the jury was heavily influenced by that. I mean, they, uh, this guy was a hero. And damn it, they weren't going to go along with that cop. But that's an aberrational trial. Michael's trial would not have been like that. I think Michael would have come out a hero. And I, there was terrific cross-examination material to use on the father and the boy. Uh, I, I, I was pretty sure he was going to win and Johnny was on Michael's side. So, and Johnny was a fine criminal lawyer, you know, as good as there. But in the end, he listened to a person who wasn't a lawyer, Elizabeth Taylor. Basically. Yeah. 
I I don't know to this day what Johnny said to him personally, but I I liked Johnny very much and respected him, and I uh, he may have gone along, he may may have said go along, you know, settle it, or maybe he said don't, and Elizabeth overruled him. I don't know the answer to that. Interesting. I was out of it by then. You know what I want to do with you, and I hope you don't mind, because this part is so interesting. I just almost want to like stay on this path, and I'd love to mention i don't know a name of anybody and then let's talk about how you were involved and maybe some inspirational story something involving that if you can do it well inspirational well the <laughs> beatles were inspirational to me it, there's something inspirational about trying these cases and arguing them because if you keep in mind it is the existence of our civil justice system and the criminal justice system that really separates us from most of the world. I mean, you and I and all this multitude of people that are sitting in this room uh, really have nothing to fear. Nobody's going to come and pull us off the street and throw us in prison. And, and I, I, a couple of years ago, I, I defended a uh, actually represented and defend a, a woman who had spent a year in Irvan prison in Iran. Uh, she had been a, an aid worker, and they just pulled her off the street. She was an Armenian, not an American citizen. And the Iranians just threw her in jail for a year. Now, that happens in many countries. I mean, we are totally protected from stuff. wouldn't occur to us that uh, somebody could do something like that. Uh, and a lot of that is because of all this marvelous judicial system. Does it have faults? Hell, yes, it's got faults, but it's the best system going uh, where you have a lawyer on one side, a lawyer on the other side, fighting as hard as they can. Uh, it, and in a system that really has, over centuries now, worked out rules, rules that are sometimes flexible, sometimes not. Anyway, that's a long speech in justifying uh, the legal system, but I think it's enormously important, and it makes me feel good about what I'm doing because I feel like I'm not just fighting for this client. I'm a part of this enormous process that uh, a Harvard Law School professor of mine, Austin Wakeman Scott, who was a famous, famous Harvard professor, and he once didn't realize what he was saying to my class. And he was teaching us trusts. And he said, gentlemen, in those days there were no women at Harvard Law School. So he said, gentlemen, you must think of the law as a piece of paper. And there's a line down the center of that piece of paper. And someone comes along and with a pin and makes a pinprick on one side and then makes a pinprick on the, somebody else makes a pinprick on the other side and one print after another. He said, and so the law is based upon the pricks on each side of the line. <laughs> he had no idea what he was saying and the class just broke up. Uh, and to this, he's dead now, but I'm sure to his the day of his death, he never understood why this entire class laughed at his analogy. You know, I think about what you just said, and you know how boxers sometimes will say after, you know, years later after a fight when they came in the middle of the ring and they do that stare down. Mm -hmm. 
that one of them might have felt anxiety and felt, oh, God, this guy's going to kick my ass. Was there ever an attorney that you went up against over and over again that you felt a little anxiety going up against? And then who were the people that you felt you always had their number? Well, I'm not going to tell you <laughs> either category. I, when I was young and I went up against really well-known famous lawyers, there was, of course there was anxiety. Uh, I can remember, and I learned a lot from those guys. I, I, I had a case against Bob Kenny, who uh, was a wonderful lawyer, dead many years now, and he had run for governor, and he was a very, very famous lawyer. And I can, it was one of my first uh, civil arguments, and I got up, and I was kind of nasty and assertive, and we had disagreed on something in front of the judge, uh, and I said really kind of strongly and stridently about this. And he got up and he said, you know, Your Honor, uh, we had this disagreement, but I listened to Mr. Fields and I think probably, he's probably closer to correct about that. I think we ought to go along with his word on that, which wasn't that important to the case, but the judge just loved it. You know, because judges kind of hate when lawyers are disagreeing and fighting about the fact. And I learned a lot from that. You don't be strident. You know, be polite, be reasonable. Uh, and I can remember having a case against Frank Belcher, who was a famous, famous lawyer. And, and so, sure, I was scared shitless in, <laughs> in those days. But today, I mean, there are lawyers that I enjoy trying a case against, some not so much. I mean, are there any lawyers that you've run into that you feel have your number? In other words, you go in and for some reason they're the only people who can knock you off your game and make things very difficult for you. No. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's do. A little, let's do a little six degrees of separation. Yep. Sure. How much time left do I have with you? Well, maybe you got uh, forty minutes. If All you right. Want that long? I do want every minute of it. Okay. All right. I'm going to mention a name. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you feel about the case you did or what happened and the exciting things about it that meant something to you. Mario Puzo. Ah, he's a great, great favorite of mine and and uh, a dear friend. Uh, the late Mario Puzo. The late Mario Puzo. He, uh, I miss him. He was a delightful guy. And he wrote The Godfather. And we had uh, all kinds of cases. I represented a hotel in Las Vegas. And he loved to gamble. And he had this fight about uh, credit on a picture. And the owners of the hotel said, why don't you use our lawyer? So that's how I first met him. And he was kind of funny about uh, that. Uh, when he was young, he considered himself a compulsive gambler. He would gamble everything. And he said, uh, as I got older and rich from the Godfather, I'm not crazy. So I'm not going to bet everything when everything really means something. It was one thing to bet everything when I had $10. Now I've got millions, I'm not going to do that. He, uh, 
despite the Godfather, he felt very strongly about the mafia. He told me, I remember his, his words, he didn't want me to get involved. The, Godfather, the mafia people were hanging around the set quite a bit uh, when The Godfather was made. And, in fact, the guy who played Luca Brazzi was the guy who was in the mafia. Uh, and Mario said, listen, let me tell you what's going to happen if you get involved with these guys. Your dog is going to die. The day your dog dies, somebody is going to come up to your door with a little puppy and say, this is from Don Vito. He knows you've lost your dog, and he wants you to have this little puppy. And you're going to say, that's wonderful. What a nice, thoughtful thing of Don Vito. Then four years later, you're going to about to go into trial in a big case, and you're going to get a call. And it's going to be, we want you to lose this case. And you're going to say, what are you talking about? Why would I want to lose the case? He said, no, no, Don Vito wants you to lose the case. Remember the puppy? And there was the message was, don't get involved. They'll do nice things. Then they'll destroy you and they'll own you. So I tried to take his advice. Now, my mind goes to the fact that they killed the dog and they brought the puppy. <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't. No. His illustration, they're going to do something nice for you and then they'll own you. Got it. Warren Beatty. Ah, Warren was a great friend and a, just a wonderful, wonderful person. When my wife was diagnosed uh, with lung cancer, Warren considers himself an amateur doctor, said, well, find out if there's any involvement with the brain because the two often go together. And I was embarrassed to say to my doctor, what about brain? Because and because he would say, where'd you get that idea? And I'd have to say a movie star. And I that didn't, couldn't do that. So I was in New York with my wife. And all of a sudden I got a call from the hotel lobby Warren Beatty is here in the lobby. He wants to talk to you. So I said, Warren, what are you doing in New York, and why are you here? He said, I made an appointment uh, with a radiologist for Lydia. Uh, you're getting in the car right now. car's waiting, and I'm taking you to the radiologist. And he did. He and Dustin Hoffman were inseparable from me, and they got me through uh, that agonizing, which you understand, ordeal. But Warren has done that. I mean, he flew Hal Ashby across the country, rented a plane for him when Hal was sick. He's an extraordinary person. Wow. As is Dustin. Wow. So when you work on a case for somebody who's that close to you, mm -hmm. how do you separate business from personal? Like, do you want to just say when you work with somebody, look, man, I don't, my firm, I don't care what my firm says. You've done so much for I don't, Just We're just doing this. Mm -hmm. Or does your firm say to you, look, you know, business is business, personal is personal. You mean about being paid? Yeah. Well, I think probably uh, uh, I don't remember doing anything free for Warren. I don't think he would expect that or ask it. I did, we had a lot of dealings, and, and uh, it was a, a, on a professional relationship. 
if Warren needed me for something uh, personal, I would, of course I wouldn't charge him. Uh, professionally, it's kind of like a doctor. I mean, I'm dear friends with a couple of doctors that I go to, and but they uh, they bill me. <laughs> they, uh, Not the same hourly rate as yours, though. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> but but then they work eighty-five hour days, so that's uh, something of a joke. <laughs> uh, so do you, uh, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg? Jeffrey Katzenberg is another favorite client of mine, and uh, his trial was one of the landmark trials. Uh, that was the. We're talking about the, the Michael his, uh, Eisner cross examination, which uh, where Mr. Eisner, and this is the first time that it ever happened to me. In essence, he said, "Mr. Fields, you must stop asking me these questions, or it's not going to go well for your client." And I, the judge rolled his eyes. And, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that that was essentially. Remember the question that made him say that? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, didn't you call Mr. Katzenberg a little midget? <laughs> Didn't you say I hate the little midget? <laughs> uh, and that's when he did it. But there had been a series of questions. Like did he that. say yes? Uh, no, he said, Mr. Fields, you must stop <laughs> asking me these questions. But doesn't the judge say you have <laughs> yeah, to answer yeah, the question? The judge said that, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> And so you say you never go to trial with anything you don't think you're going to win. Well, sometimes you think it's an uphill fight. I mean, I file cases sometimes that are uphill fights, and you take them on, but you, you kind of hope you're going to win. The worst, uh, sometimes people say, what's the worst experience you ever had in a courtroom or an arbitration? And I represented a guy named David Merrick, who was in his day a the greatest of Broadway impresarios. He had something like a seven hit shows running on Broadway at the same time. And David had a violent temper and also had a very high opinion of himself, perhaps justified. And the, uh, the lawyer for the other side, David was on the stand and we had to put in, they had a very weak case. And I thought, we're going to win easily, but he had to testify, and the lawyer, you know, he stated his name, and the lawyer said, "What is your occupation, sir?" Well, David turned bright red, and said, "I don't have to take this shit," and walked out of the room. <laughs> How do you walk out of a courtroom? This was an arbitration, oh, okay. so or they would have arrested him. He just walked out, and, and we, I went out, and followed, and he was gone on the first question. He <laughs> was gone. Yeah. Well, he was so incensed that this lawyer uh, didn't know how famous he was, that he would say, what is your occupation? And they made really, I don't have to take this shit and walked out. <laughs> but the, the irony was that that night, the lawyer for the other side called. He had a very weak case. And he said, you know, yeah, it was not a good day for you, but we're, we're willing to drop the case if you'll forget about attorney's fees. And so I called David and I said, great news. You know, they're you know they're willing to give up the case. We just forget about the attorney fees. Says Seabert, I know how to win these goddamn cases. <laughs> he thought to the day of his death that walking out had done it. <laughs> Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is another delight. I've had such good luck in the people 
that I represent. Luck. Well, luck in the, in the people that luck. I represent. Come on, Bert. I don't mean in the in trials. I'm just saying no. in in the selection of clients. I you know people say actors are difficult. I I mine are not. Uh, Tom, you can't have a nicer man than Tom Cruise. Uh, he, he, he just I delight to represent. I've represented him for a long time. But you say luck. It's like these people choose you. Oh yeah, they they choose me. But I am lucky in the sense that bad people haven't chosen me. Uh, I mean, I haven't. I I can't think of. Uh, I chose you for well, this interview. I, I can think of some that I some that I fired. Uh, Can you talk about who you fired? I hate to do that to them because they're um, they're alive <laughs> and they're famous. Got it. Yeah, yeah. and I, you, I have a little file of people I fired under taxes, nineteen ninety seven. It's 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 there. Meanwhile, I resign from people and they become huge stars. Figure yeah. it out. <laughs> so when you resign from somebody. Is there something that they do or? Yeah, what's, always. What's a thing that if I call you and I'm a celebrity, yeah, I want yeah. you to represent me. What's the Ten Commandments of thou shall not say or do this to me and we'll have a great relationship? Well, one of the examples is somebody, I put two clients together and to do a deal. And the one client really... Did bad things to the other client, and I just wrote a letter saying that may be your style, but it's not mine, and I never want to represent you again. So lose my phone number, and you don't have to pay the bill. Uh, it was just what he did was sleazy, uh, and I felt very sorry for my other client. Uh, Usually it has to be pretty serious. I mean, I just don't go around firing clients because I like it, but uh, sometimes I do. The Tom Cruise stuff you've worked on is always fascinating to me because it's all out in the public. And, you know, when you're dealing with slander, it can come in these days from all different areas. And how, as a lawyer, can you protect somebody like Tom Cruise? Is it a question of identifying the one most highest profile source that does it and then slamming them down and then the other people are fearful? Pretty much. Uh, Obviously, we can't go around suing everybody who says false things about Tom. But if we pick one every once in a while, it does tend to slow it up. Uh, it, It really has a therapeutic effect. So once every two, three years, if something is really outrageous, we'll, we'll file a lawsuit over it. I want to ask you about this because I, I don't even know the answer. We touched on it before. Yeah. But let's say I come to you and I'm a, let's say I was a huge star and somebody makes a claim against me that says I'm a self-hating Jew and I'm anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And I come to you and I say, Bert, I need to defend myself, but I have to come clean with you. Mm-hmm. There have been three instances in my life where I've said anti-Semitic things, mm-hmm. and I'm ashamed of it, but I don't want to be judged on these things, and I don't want people to know about them, and I want to, like, brush it aside. If you know that the guy is hiding the truth, 
yet he wants to knock down this thing that's saying this about him. Will you still take a case like that? Well, I would advise him not to bring a libel suit if he wasn't prepared to be examined about these things that he didn't want to come out. Uh, it's, I advise people often not to bring libel cases. Uh, first of all, you have to face the fact that you're making a huge story out of something that was a much smaller story. I mean, and, and, and Tom realizes that. You know, we sue the Inquirer. Well, how many people saw the cover of the Inquirer? And it's not that many. It's a lot. Uh, but Tom Cruise suing the Inquirer, and you go to court and you're having a public trial, that's going to be a huge story. It's going to be everywhere. So you're doing that. And if there really is truth in it, well, one thing I, I say and I, that I've learned from history, if you have committed a crime, and this doesn't apply to Tom, he hasn't committed any crime, but if you've committed a crime, for God's sake, and somebody says you've committed the crime, don't sue them for libel. I mean, Alger Hiss, who was a famous, I don't know if you remember him, his early times, he was very, very high up in the United States government. And Time magazine accused him of being a spy for Russia. He sued for libel. Uh, he lost. The jury found that indeed he was a spy, a Russian spy. Then, of course, he was prosecuted. Oscar Wilde, many, many years before, did the same thing. He was accused of being what in those days was called a pederast. He sued uh, for libel, and he lost. And then, because that was then a crime in England, he went to jail. So if you've done something, for God's sake, don't sue for libel claiming you didn't do it. Because it's going to come out. Uh, let's do one final. Enough pontificating. No, no, it's great. Uh, let's just talk about one more person and then sure. we'll go to the final roundup here. George Lucas. Oh, I, George is brilliant. And I, I just got a great kick out of working with him. And you uh, worked on a unique thing where it involves Star Wars, I believe, and the Disney theme park. We were doing a theme park deal and, and uh, negotiating that that deal and actually went out later to uh, to go on the ride. I, I'm trying to remember, was it Star Wars? Or? I think it was a Star Wars Disney. I, I know it was Disney, and I know it was a theme park deal. And I got a great kick out of George. I did some other stuff for George over the years, and, and uh, he's a brilliant guy. I mean, he's kind of shy. Uh, he, he very different from actor clients, and you know, he's, he's reticent. But it's just a wonderful mind. I mean, look what he created with Star Wars. I mean, that's stupendous. He's created an entire universe uh, from his imagination. That's incredible. All right, uh, a few more questions here. Yes. Your three favorite courtroom movies. Oh, my. Uh, Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, a Few Good Men. <laughs> yeah. 
You wouldn't know the truth if you heard it. <laughs> I do very bad, Jack Nicholson. Uh, <laughs> and I, I guess the third... Boy, I guess to kill a mockingbird, probably. So I, I would pick those three. Perry Mason and television was like oh, my yeah. favorite thing of all time. I mean, I just loved that. I don't know. Why do you think America is so obsessed with courtroom dramas? They love it. You know, I was in a dragnet years and years ago in a courtroom. With Jack Webb. Yeah, well, yeah. And I still see it. It's been played um, hundreds of times. You, you'll see it every once in a while, late at night. Uh, I play a young lawyer. I was a young lawyer at the time. Jack thought it would be funny to uh, or nice for my kid who was then two years old. I always felt bad for the actor who always lost the case. He lost every single to case. Perry Mason? Yeah. I've <laughs> forgotten was, his name. He was like the Washington Generals yeah, to the Harlem yeah, Globetrotters. He always lost yeah. the cases. Tell me a courtroom movie that you saw that's like the worst thing. You like? It's like awful. I don't remember an awful one. I just like them. Oh, there's another one I would that I really enjoyed that I've put up there is my cousin Vinny. Of course, the, uh, which I thought was just terrific. The judge talks about <laughs> when he, <laughs> he argues for this this Ute, and the judge says, "Ute, what's a Ute?" <laughs> All right, your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to feel yourself to be more successful? Boy, biggest... I, you know, I haven't had a lot of... And I of, say show business because you know, what you were doing in entertainment was yeah, centered around show business. I, you know, I, I really haven't had a lot of disappointments in show business. I, I would think... Uh, I had an idea decades ago when Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman were the two biggest stars in the world. And I had this idea with Elaine May. We were walking home one day after dinner in New York. And I said, what if we made a picture where they each played the opposite kind of role? Dustin played the heroic guy and Warren played, played the funny little guy, kind of. And we hit on a picture. And that picture was actually made. And at the time... That was Ishtar. That was Ishtar. It was one of the biggest bombs ever. One of the in those days, it was the biggest bomb of all time. It's actually dedicated to my late wife. Uh, if you look at Ishtar today, it says dedicated to the memory of Lydia Fields, because she was dying while we were doing this, while the picture was being made. And they just felt so sorry for me. They had me in the cutting room, and they were just like family. So to have that a bomb was disappointing, but it was such a rewarding human experience that it was really, really worth it. I hate to go back to the well, but I'm going to because I feel a kindred spirit to you because I think our audience would love to know this and a lot of them go through these things like obviously you're at the time that you're going through this with your late wife you're working and you have to be great husband and you have to be supportive and then you have to be great to your clients and you have this balance that you're pulling back and forth i mean i i would love you to share with our audience because a lot of times when a person is dying even though They've been told 
the prognosis, the will to believe that there's a chance that things are going to go well and things are going to turn around and they're going to beat this no matter all the odds is almost always there until the end. Yet you on the other side talk to the doctors more probably than she does. Oh, sure. And you know what's going to happen. My mother tells me when my dad was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and he was given six months to live, they told her and they said, do you want us to say that to him? And she said, no, don't say that to him. I want him to know that he can pull through this. Yeah. So if you don't mind sharing with our audience, like how do you handle something like that and be great for the people that are counting on you in business? Well, two separate issues. What do you tell the person you love when they're in that situation? And the second is how do you handle a career or a job when you're in that situation? The second for me was not as hard because the clients were mostly people who'd become friends and they just couldn't do enough to help. Uh, they were very understanding. If I couldn't make a meeting, that's fine. I'd take off, Bert. You know, we'll get by. And I had other people in my firm. They covered for me. Everybody was pretty good, so I was able to do it. If I'd had, if I'd been practicing alone, it would have been, when I didn't have clients like that, it would have been terrible because I was working about half time. The rest of the other half, I was flying around the country trying to get my wife cured. Uh, as to what you tell somebody you love, I, I, it's a, such a personal decision. Uh, I felt, knowing Lydia, that it would be better if she thought there was hope. And I, so I would try and kind of mitigate the damage. Obviously she knew she could die and we would talk about that. You know, there's a big chance you're going to die of this. But on the other hand, I tried always to let her think that there, maybe there'll be a new drug. You know, I hear there's something going on and, uh, Back at Harvard Medical School, maybe we'll try that. You know, when I knew it was too late to try anything because I didn't want her to give up. But that's a very personal decision. I, I could have been wrong. You know, you got to decide. It depends on the person you're dealing with. You weren't wrong. I, I don't think I was wrong, no. All right. Your proudest moment Oof. in your career. In my career? Wow. You know, I, I just winning a bunch of cases is they each is a. Uh, I feel get filled with pride. Uh, certainly, winning the cases we've talked about, the Beatles case, the getting an injunction against the Paramount Picture, uh, the Katzenberg case, all of those cases. Uh, it's a great heady feeling when the judge says you won, uh, and. Uh, I would have given it all up if my wife could have lived. You know, those things, they seem very important at the time. They're not that important in, when you're talking about life and death and somebody you love. Absolutely. 
before I ask my the final question, I just want to ask you this. The final question make it seem like I'm going to die now. No, no. I'm going to die, <laughs> not you. I'm This has been probably the most original podcast I think I've ever done in my life. Really? Really very unique. And these people here are witness to this. They're thinking, is this like this all the time? And this doesn't seem like we should be crying in the audience here (laughs) doing this. I feel like crying. I think our audience would love to know a case that you went into that you were like, I've got this. This is like, I am going to take these people down. You're meeting with the clients. You're like, there's no way. We've got this thing. We're going to crush these people like a bug. And then you go in like Marsha Clark and the OJ thing, <laughs> and you just get your head handed to you. Could you share a case like that? I, I really, I, I, I would if I could. Come uh, on, there's no, got to no, be one I, that you really, lost. I, I don't say I've won every case, but I'm, most of them. There's not and one that you thought you were going to? No, and even uh, one that, that uh, one jury trial uh, that, but even then, I I felt pretty good about it. I I, I was I can't remember uh, just a severe uh, loss and or a surprising loss. And the, the, the win rate is pretty high. Let's talk about your win rate because you know in baseball, mm-hmm. every player that's in the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. fails like seven out of every ten times yeah. at the plate. Well, what's your winning percentage? I would say if you're talking about actual, if you're talking about trials, not motions. Trials. You know, you go down, you argue emotion and. I'm talking about the trials. Actual trials. Yes. uh, From your first celebrity case until now. What's your winning? About 90 some percent. 90 something percent. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. All right. (laughs) The last question before we both pass away. What advice do you have for the young person in business? It might be young lawyer, young person wanting to get into business, not sure exactly how they're going to get to the next level, and to have the kind of career that you've had. And 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 also, I want to ask the second part of that question because you work with so many extraordinary artists. Also, take it to what you think. Because you said there were a lot of artists that you were friends with that weren't really doing that much, and then they became big stars. What advice do you have for the young artists out there that you've observed throughout the years that could take them also to the next level? Well, it's hard to talk about different professions and different jobs. I mean, there's no formula. If I had to hit on things that apply over a broad field, I would say... Well, hey, be smart. <laughs> it helps. Uh, but you can't do anything about that. But prepare. Work hard. Try to understand what other people are saying or trying to communicate to you. Try to find a way to allow them to reach their goals while you reach you without sacrificing yours. Uh, try to understand your opponent and what's or your business rival and what are their advantages and disadvantages. Try to take a logical approach uh, 
uh, rather than an emotional approach to competition and adversity. But that's a lot of generalization, you know. It, it, uh, you really have to take it one case at a time. Everybody's case is very individual and very different. So I'm always hesitant to give advice like that. Uh, you know, I, I don't take my own advice all the time. Well, I think that people are going to listen to this and they're going to really love it. They've gotten to know you. They've gotten to know your history. And for your first podcast, let me tell you something. You really, really uh, blew me away, and you're going to blow the audience away, and I'm very, very grateful. Thank you. Can I I now say I was a virgin? (laughs) Yes, you can for somebody who tells me that they had a hard time keeping their hands off women. (laughs) You can tell me you're a virgin. Okay. I've learned a lot from you today. Thank you. I really appreciate your first class. Thank you very much. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsor at Global Cash Card for free paperless payroll, saving your company thousands of dollars at globalcashcard.com. And as promised, our friends there are giving away $100 to a lucky winner who listens to this podcast from the iTunes comment review industry standard page. I will flick my magic mouse here, and we will figure out who's going to win this week. Okay, we just landed on Eric Duffy, September 21st, 2014. Keep on casting that pod, BK. Five stars. I always thought I was a part of an us in the old us versus them kind of way. Maybe I still am. And Barry, he's still part of us. Even though he plays with them. I love this podcast. Barry has a skillful means of communication, and he gets his guests to give up the goods, so to speak. Thanks for the podcast, Barry. I tune in every week. Keep on keeping on. Thank you, Eric. That means a lot to me, and you have just won a $100 gift card to Global Cash Card. Congratulations. All right. As always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.